Section thirty seven of Marion Fay by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Volume two, chapter fifteen. That would be disagreeable. Things at Trafford on that day and on the next were very uncomfortable. No house could possibly be more so. There were four persons who, in the natural course of things, would have lived together, not one of whom would sit down to table with any other. The condition of the Marquis, of course, made it impossible that he should do so. He was confined to his room, in which he would not admit Mr. Greenwood to come near him, and where his wife's short visits did not seem to give him much satisfaction. Even with his son he was hardly at his ease, seeming to prefer the society of the nurse with occasional visits from the doctor and Mr. Roberts. The Marchioness confined herself to her own room, in which it was her intention to prevent the inroads of Mr. Greenwood as far as it might be possible. That she should be able to exclude him altogether was more than she could hope but much, she thought, could be done by the dint of headaches and by a resolution never to take her food downstairs. Lord Hampstead had declared his purpose to Harris, as well as to his father, never again to sit down to table with Mr. Greenwood. "'Where does he dine?' he asked the butler. "'Generally in the family dining-room, my lord,' said Harris." then give me my dinner in the breakfast parlor. Yes, my lord, said the butler, who at once resolved to regard Mr. Greenwood as an enemy of the family. In this manner Mr. Greenwood gave no trouble, as he had his meat sent to him in his own sitting-room. But all this made the house very uncomfortable. In the afternoon Mr. Roberts came over from Shrewsbury, and saw Lord Hampstead. "'I knew he would make himself disagreeable, my lord,' said Mr. Roberts. "'How did you know it?' "'Things creep out. He had made himself disagreeable to his lordship for some months past, and then we heard that he was talking of Apple Slocum as though he were certain to be sent there. My father never thought of it. I didn't think he did.' Mr. Greenwood is the idlest human being that ever lived, and how could he have performed the duties of a parish? He asked my father once, and my father flatly refused him. Perhaps her ladyship, suggested Mr. Roberts, with some hesitation. At any rate, he is not to have Apple Slocum, and he must be made to go. How is it to be done? Mr. Roberts raised his eyebrows. I suppose there must be some means of turning an objectionable resident out of a house. The police, of course, could carry him out with a magistrate's order. He would have to be treated like any other vagrant. That would be disagreeable. Very disagreeable, my lord, said Mr. Roberts. My lord should be saved from that, if possible. How if we gave him nothing to eat, said Lord Hampstead. That would be possible, but it would be troublesome. What if he resolved to remain and be starved? It would be seeing which would hold out the longer. 
I don't think my lord would have the heart to keep him twenty-four hours without food. We must try and save my lord from what is disagreeable as much as we can. Lord Hampstead was in accord as to this, but did not quite see his way how to effect it. There were still, however, more than three weeks to run before the day fixed for the chaplain's exit, and Mr. Roberts suggested that it might in that time be fully brought home to the man that his two hundred pounds a year would depend on his going. "'Perhaps you'd better leave him to me, my lord,' said Mr. Roberts, "'and I shall deal with him better when you're not here.' When the time came for afternoon tea, Mr. Greenwood, perceiving that no invitation came to him from the Marchioness, sent a note up to her asking for the favor of an interview. He had a few words to say, and would be very much obliged to her if she would allow him to come to her. On receiving this, she pondered for some time before she could make up her mind as to what answer she should give. She would have been most anxious to do as she had already heard that Lord Hampstead had done, and declined to meet him at all. She could not analyze her own feelings about the man, but had come during the last few days to hold him in horror. It was as though something of the spirit of the murderer had shown itself to her in her eyes. She had talked glibly, wickedly, horribly, of the death of the man who had seemed to stand in her way. She had certainly wished for it. She had taught herself to think, by some ultra-feminine lack of logic, that she had really been injured in that her own eldest boy had not been born heir to his father's titles. She had found it necessary to have some recipient for her griefs. Her own sister, Lady Persiflage, had given her no comfort, and then she had sought for and had received encouragement from her husband's chaplain. But in talking of Lord Hampstead's death she had formed no plan. She had only declared, in strong language, that if, by the hand of Providence, such a thing should be done, it would be to her a happy chance. She had spoken out where another more prudent than she would perhaps only have wished. But this man had taken up her words with an apparent serious purpose which had frightened her, and then, as though he had been the recipient of some guilty secret, he had laid aside the respect which had been usual to him, and had assumed a familiarity of co-partnership which had annoyed and perplexed her. She did not quite understand it all, but was conscious of a strong desire to be rid of him. But she did not dare quite as yet to let him know that such was her purpose, and she therefore sent her maid down to him with a message. "'Mr. Greenwood wants to see me,' she said to the woman. "'Will you tell him, with my compliments, that I am not very well?' and that I must beg him not to stay long. Lord Hampstead has been a-quarrelling with Mr. Greenwood, my lady, this very morning, said the maid. Quarrelling, Walker? Yes, my lady, there has been ever so much about it. My lord says as he won't sit down to dinner with Mr. Greenwood on no account. And Mr. Roberts has been here all about it. He's to be turned away. Who's to be turned away? Mr. Greenwood, my lady. Lord Hampstead has been about it all the morning. 
It's for that my lord the Marquis has sent for him, and nobody's to speak to him till he's packed up everything and taken himself right away out of the house. Who has told you all that, Walker? Walker, however, would not betray her informant. She answered that it was being talked of by everybody downstairs, and she repeated it now only because she thought it proper that my lady should be informed of what was going on. My lady was not sorry to have received the information, even from her maid, as it might assist her in her conversation with the chaplain. On this occasion Mr. Greenwood sat down without being asked. "'I am sorry to hear that you are so unwell, Lady Kingsbury.' "'I have got one of my usual headaches, only it's rather worse than usual.' I have something to say which I am sure you will not be surprised that I should wish to tell you. I have been grossly insulted by Lord Hampstead. What can I do? Well, something ought to be done. I cannot make myself answerable for Lord Hampstead, Mr. Greenwood. No, of course not. He is a young man for whom no one would make himself answerable. He is headstrong, violent, and most uncourteous. He has told me very rudely that I must leave the house by the end of the month. I suppose the Marquis had told him. I don't believe it. Of course the Marquis is ill, and I could bear much from him, but I won't put up with it from Lord Hampstead. What can I do? Well... After what has passed between us, Lady Kingsbury, he paused and looked at her as he made this appeal. She compressed her lips and collected herself and prepared for the fight which she felt was coming. He saw it all and prepared himself also. After what has passed between us, Lady Kingsbury, he said, repeating his words, I think you ought to be on my side. I don't think anything of the kind. I don't know what you mean about sides. If the Marquis says you are to go, I can't keep you. I'll tell you what I've done, Lady Kingsbury. I have refused to stir out of this house till I've been allowed to discuss the matter with his lordship, and I think you ought to give me your countenance. I'm sure I've always been true to you. When you have unburdened your troubles to my ears, I have always been sympathetic. When you have told me what a trouble this young man has been to you, have not I always, always, always taken your part against him? He almost longed to tell her that he had formed a plan for ridding her altogether of the obnoxious young man, but he could not find the words in which to do this. Of course I have felt that I might depend upon you for assistance and countenance in this house. Mr. Greenwood, she said, I really cannot talk to you about these things. My head is aching very badly, and I must ask you to go. And that is to be all? Don't you hear me tell you that I cannot interfere? Still he kept that horrid position of his upon the chair staring at her with his large, open, lusterless eyes. "'Mr. Greenwood, I must ask you to leave me. As a gentleman you must comply with my request.' "'Oh, 
he said. Very well. Then I am to know that, after thirty years' faithful service, all the family has turned against me. I shall take care. But he paused, remembering that, were he to speak a word too much, he might put in jeopardy the annuity which had been promised him, and at last he left the room. Of Mr. Greenwood no one saw anything more that day, nor did Lord Hampstead encounter him again before he returned to London. Hampstead had arranged to stay at Trafford during the following day, and then to return to London, again using the night mail train. But on the next morning a new trouble fell upon him. He received his sister's letter, and learned that George Roden had been with her at Hendon Hall. He had certainly pledged himself that there should be no such meeting, and had foolishly renewed this pledge only yesterday. When he read the letter he was vexed, chiefly with himself. The arguments which she had used as to Roden's coming, and also those by which she had excused herself for receiving him, did seem to him to be reasonable. When the man was going on such a journey it was natural that he should wish to see the girl he loved, and natural that she should wish to see him. And he was well aware that neither of them had pledged themselves. It was he only who had given a pledge, and that as to the conduct of others who had refused to support him in it. Now his pledge had been broken, and he felt himself called upon to tell his father of what had occurred. After all that I told you yesterday, he said, George Roden and Fanny have met each other. Then he attempted to make the best excuse he could for this breach of the promise which he had made. What's the good? said the Marquis. They can't marry each other. I wouldn't give her a shilling if she were to do such a thing without my sanction. Hampstead knew very well that in spite of this his father had made by his will ample provision for his sister, and that it was very improbable that any alteration in this respect would be made, let his sister's disobedience be what it might. But the Marquis seemed hardly to be so much affected as he had expected by these tidings. "'Whatever you do,' said the Marquis, "'don't let her ladyship know it. She would be sure to come down to me and say it was all my fault, and then she would tell me what Mr. Greenwood thought about it. The poor man did not know how little likely it was that she would ever again throw Mr. Greenwood in his teeth. Lord Hampstead had not as yet even seen his stepmother, but had thought it no more than decent to send her word that he would wait upon her before he left the house. All domestic troubles he knew to be bad. For his stepmother's sake, and for that of his sister and little brothers, he would avoid, as far as might be possible, any open rupture. He therefore went to the marchioness before he ate his dinner. "'My father is much better,' he said. But his stepmother only shook her head, so that there was before him the task of recommencing the conversation. "'Dr. Spicer says so.' I am not sure that Mr. Spicer knows much about it. He thinks so himself. He never tells me what he thinks. He hardly tells me anything. He is not strong enough for much talking. 
he will talk to Mr. Roberts by the hour together. So, I hear that I am to congratulate you. This she said in a tone which was clearly intended to signify both condemnation and ridicule. I am not aware of it, said Hampstead with a smile. I suppose it is true about the Quaker lady? I can hardly tell you, not knowing what you may have heard. There can be no room for congratulation, as the lady has not accepted the offer I have made her. The Marchioness laughed incredulously, with a little affected laugh in which the incredulity was sincere. I can only tell you that it is so. No doubt you will try again. No doubt. Young ladies in such circumstances are not apt to persevere in their severity. Perhaps it may be supposed that she will give way at last. I cannot take upon myself to answer that, Lady Kingsbury. The matter is one on which I am not particularly anxious to talk. Only as you asked me, I thought it best just to tell you the facts. I am sure I am ever so much obliged to you. The young lady's father is? The young lady's father is a clerk in a merchant's house in the city. So I understand. And a Quaker? And a Quaker. And I believe he lives at Holloway? Just so. In the same street with that young man whom Fanny has, has chosen to pick up? Marion Fay and her father live at number 17 Paradise Row, Holloway, and Mrs. Roden and George Roden live at number 11. Exactly. We may understand, therefore, how you became acquainted with Miss Fay. I don't think you can. But if you wish to know, I will tell you that I first saw Miss Fay at Mrs. Roden's house. I suppose so. Hampstead had begun this interview with perfect good humor, but there had gradually been growing upon him that tone of defiance which her little speeches to him had naturally produced. Scorn would always produce scorn in him, as would ridicule and satire produce the same in return. I do not know why you should have supposed so, but such was the fact. Neither had George Roden or my sister anything to do with it. Miss Fay is a friend of Mrs. Roden, and Mrs. Roden introduced me to the young lady. I am sure we are all very much obliged to her. I am, at any rate, or shall be if I succeed at last. Poor fellow, it will be very piteous if you too are thwarted in love. I'll say good-bye, my lady, said he, getting up to leave her. You have told me nothing of Fanny. I do not know that I have anything to tell. Perhaps she also will be jilted. I should hardly think so. Because, as you tell me, she is not allowed to see him. There was a thorough disbelief expressed in this which annoyed him. It was as though she had expressed her opinion that the lovers were encouraged to meet daily, in spite of the pledge which had been given. And then the pledge had been broken, and there would be a positive lie on his part if he were now to leave her with the idea that they had not met. 
you must find it hard to keep them apart as they are so near i have found it too hard at any rate oh you have they did meet yesterday oh they did directly your back was turned he was going abroad and he came and she has written to tell me of it i say nothing of myself lady kingsbury but i do not think you can understand how true she can be and he also that is your idea of truth that is my idea of truth lady kingsbury which as i said before i am afraid i cannot explain to you i have never meant to deceive you nor have they i thought a promise was a promise she said then he left her condescending to make no further reply on that night he went back to london with a sad feeling at his heart that his journey down to trafford had done no good to any one he had however escaped a danger of which he had known nothing end of section thirty seven recording by arnold banner thurmond north carolina